Well, I'm going to ask you to uh, take out your bulletin, if you would, and you have an outline inside of there. If you have not been here over the last few weeks, we have started up a new series uh, looking at the core values of our church here at First Baptist. You can see those core values written up on the blocks that are behind me, so if uh, you don't ever know what those are, just look right up there, begin to memorize some of those. You'll be hearing these themes come out over the next few months here, and today we are going to be talking about the Bible. We're going to be looking at uh, why it's true and how do we know that it's authoritative in what we believe. In fact, if you would, read this screen with me because this is what we value. Read the whole thing with me. It says, we value biblical authority. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It's in the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. All right, so that's the question we're going to be looking at today because we have just said we believe that it's the final Word. How today can we know that? How do we know that it is indeed God's word, that it's inspired by God? In fact, as it says out of 2 Timothy 3.16, that it's God-breathed. That's what scripture says here, that all scripture is God-breathed. That's not just the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, but all the scripture in here is God-breathed. How do we know that it's God-breathed? How do we know and why do we give it so much authority in our lives for everything that we believe and for everything that we do. And and just as critically, here's the other question I'm really going to be answering here today. How do we really know it's true? How do we really know that it's complete and that it's accurate in how we hold it here today? Those of you who have your scriptures, in fact, if you don't have a Bible, you might want to reach right into the pew in front of you upstairs and uh, into the chairs down here. could be underneath your chair. It could be underneath the chair that's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to get one. If you want to even get one on the way out here, we have them at the Next Step Center. How do we know that this word is true? How do we know that it's reliable? How do we know that it's accurate, that it's complete? Because as Christians, we uh, have this formed historical position that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. But many times people will question us, and they'll say, how do you know that that is truly God's Word? How do you know that it's inspired? And what I want to encourage you here today, that if someone brings up that argument to you and begins to disprove the Bible in front of you, you won't stand before them and say, nuh-uh, okay? And you won't stand before them and say, well, well, I believe it just Because God says it. God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. That doesn't fly with many people out in the world. Because as it says out of 1 Peter, it talks about how we need to, in our hearts, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer for anybody who asks you about the reason and the hope that you have. And you have, if you're hearing me here today, and many of you are regulars around here, you know that God's word is true. You know it. And yet, why do you know? What's the hope that you have? Now, it also encourages you to do this in gentleness and respect. I think that's very key if we're going to be addressing that. But today, we're going to talk about how do we know that it is indeed true as God has given us his word. Ron Carlson, who's one of the uh, leading authorities on biblical matters, used to travel all around the world. He unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Some of you know that. Ron Carlson has been here in our pulpit for a number of years, sharing his knowledge and uh, wisdom uh, here at First Baptist about biblical studies. And 
He's a leading authority on this. He talks about one time when he was on an airplane trip and he got into a conversation with a woman who was seated across the aisle from him. She was around 50 years of age. She had her PhD in world literature. She was a professor of world literature at a prestigious school on the East Coast. And um, when she found out Dr. Carlson was a Christian and a Christian minister, she said, you know what the problem with you Christians are? In fact, have you ever heard that one, right? You know what the problem with you Christians are? Well, you know, follows up with kind of this thought. And she tells him, the problem with you Christians is you are always quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. And in her academic kind of mindset, she said, you can't do that. That's circular reasoning. You can't just quote the Bible to prove the Bible. And so Ron Carlson kind of thought about that for a moment. He said, well, ma'am, whoever told you that the Bible was one book? And she said, well, it is. He said, no, 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 no. The Bible is not one book. In fact, it is made up of 66 different books written by 40 different authors, written over a 1,500-year period on, in three different languages and on three different continents. And so when you use Peter to prove Paul or when you look to Luke and prove Isaiah, you're not just taking one book and doing circular reasoning, but you're using different authors and different texts from different books all now put together. Yes, we call it one book, but it's really made up of 66 different books by 40 different authors, 1,500-year period, three different languages, three different continents that it was written on. And in fact, you have some of that knowledge down here. This is from Ron Carlson, The Amazing Unity of the Bible. I would challenge you to have that. In fact, I had one of our older saints come up to me after the sermon and said, have people put this in their Bible. Have them cut those things out, actually front and back. You can cut it out. You can get both sides. We're going to be talking about the science on the back side in just a bit. But cut that out and have that and refer to that often. But Ron Carlson went a little more at this woman, and he said to this woman who's sitting next to her, if you don't believe that's inspired word of God, let me give you a little challenge. And this is a very interesting challenge for you to do this. He says, I challenge you to find any other 66 books in history written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period in three different languages. You choose whatever 1,500-year period that you want and show me how they have the same unity, harmony, and theme in all. She kind of looked back at him and said, well, you know what, that... That would be impossible. There's no way you, you could do that. And I, I'm an English major. I, I've studied English and, and uh, world lit many times over as well. And yes, you, you cannot do that. So Dr. Carlson says, well, ma'am, that's one of the best evidences of why this is no ordinary book. This is a supernatural book all the way from Genesis to Revelation that gives perfect unity, that gives perfect harmony of God's themes. His theme of revelation to us, to mankind, but most of all, his theme of redemption. And that theme of redemption goes all throughout Scripture. It's in unity. Uh, uh, it's unified all throughout all 66 books of those Bible, of, of the Bible that make up the Bible. And so today what I want to do is I just want to kind of look at some different areas where we see the Bible as having this supernatural imprint of God that's upon us and how you can know it is undoubtedly God's word and is very reliable. Now again, some of you will just say, we don't need to do this because I already believe that, Pastor Brad. That's fine. But why do you believe that? In fact, I would believe many of you have just kind of assumed that. Many of you have just kind of gone along with it. And that's okay. There's a faith. There's a trust factor in there. But I want to give you hope for the reason that you have as well. 
Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about prophecies. We just don't have enough time to cover all this. Um, next week, I'm going to share a little bit more about the Bible, how in, we're in the area of prophecy that have come true, nothing has ever been disproven. That is in Scripture. We're also going to look at some seeming contradictions that people would say, well, doesn't this area contradict another area in Scripture and see how they don't? But today, one of the main arguments that I want to bring up and talk about is when people say, you know what? And it's just been so long since the Bible was written. So many years have passed. How do we know that it hasn't been changed? How do we know that it's still accurate? How do we know that it's been translated correctly? And what we have here today is what was originally intended. Kind of like the argument is a little bit like the telephone game. Do you remember the telephone game that maybe you played in uh, in first grade or second grade where someone starts uh, sharing a secret over here and that secret goes all the way back and through and winds its way through and so it's got to be all the way over here and then the last person stands up and says, well, here's what I heard and it is way different than what started out over here. You remember playing that game in elementary school? That's the argument. How do we know we have heard the original whisper that God meant to be in this word. Well, on the back of your outline, I want you to turn there if you would. We're going to be looking at how we got the New Testament and the Old Testament. This, uh, I will say, is very, very boiled down, um, but I just want to give this in bite-sized chunks. In fact, in fact, Pastor Renee Schlepfer does this very well over at Twin Lakes Church in Naptos. I've seen him do this in a great way of sharing it, so I'm going to ask for some crowd participation in this, if you would, all right? So here's what we're going to be looking at. Let's look at, first of all, the originals. These would be called the autographs of Scripture that were written, say, from 50 A.D. all the way to 90 A.D. Now, here's a little picture of what those autographs may have looked like. Um, these are the actual handwritten texts and, and scriptures as Paul wrote them or as John wrote them or as Matthew wrote them in, in scripture. Um, only one of a kind. And so here's what I want to do. I would like, if you would, those of you who are on the very outside of this row right up here and all the way up in the balcony, just the very last person seated on the end, if you wouldn't mind, if you would just stand. Okay, Mike, if you would, the very last person on the row, if you would just stand right there all the way up, just on the very last row. Perfect. You guys represent the originals. Those are the original copies, Paul or John or Matthew or someone, who how they wrote them. Now, after a few years, people started to say, we're not keeping those quite as much. We, we, we've lost some of those. And so in the early, uh, those early copies now went to 90 AD to 300 AD, and they began to write on papyrus manuscripts. And so here's a little picture of what the papyrus manuscript may have looked like. And I would like, if we could, all of this section, if you would stand up and up in the balcony on this section, if all of you would stand up as well. You guys represent the papyrus manuscripts, all right? These manuscripts were fragile. They were brittle. Do we have some of those people up there today? Yeah, maybe a few, huh? Maybe a few. They were, um, they, they were brittle with age. They did not hold up very well. And so people began to say, wow, we need to do a better job of copying these and passing on God's word. And so there was something called the unseals that came about. These were manuscripts that were written from 300 A.D. to 800 A.D. In fact, I'm going to have this whole section, if you guys would all stand, and this whole section up in the balcony, if you guys would stand up as well. 
You guys represent the unseals. These were written in large capital letters. It was done on thick material. In fact, some of it was antelope type of skin. These are also called the codex. They were built to last. However, they were very expensive to make and they were very big to keep around. And so people began to say, well, we need to do a better job of getting this out a little further. And so they came up with minuscule manuscripts. And I'm going to ask this whole section, if you would stand, as well as this whole section right up here, if you would stand as well. You guys represent the minuscule manuscripts. Um, as they were written, they were very small, but they were written on paper so that they could um, save paper. And they were copied and copied until the Middle Ages, when then they were printed on Bible which is what we have today. So around 1456 is when we began to have the Word of God printed form. So if you guys would all stand as well and up in the balcony, I'm going to let you guys be the internet, okay? How about that? Go ahead, go ahead, stand up, stand up, right? Because now it's all over the internet and on our iPhones and everything else as well. So now here's the question. How do we know that the copy of God's Word that we have way over here represents what God's original word meant from way over here. Because we don't have any more of the originals, the only one of a kinds that were written. And so all of you on the very edge, the first ones who stood up, why don't you guys sit down? All right? We don't have any more of those copies. And up until about a 100 years ago, we didn't have any more of the papyrus copies. And so if you guys would all sit down as well. And up until about a 100 years ago, we didn't have any more of these unseals. And so would you guys sit down here as well? And up until a number of years ago, we didn't have any more of these uh, minuscule manuscripts as well. So if you guys would sit down. And yet we're just left with the printed copies that we have here. How do we know that that's the same of what as what came over here? You guys can now sit down as well. You see the problem? How do we know that what we have today is true and is reliable since we don't have the ones that came before it. Well, that's a good question. It's what we need to talk about today, and it's something that I hope you will defend and be able to defend in your faith and not just take for granted. And so let me give you some proof texting for this. About 150 years ago, some of these unseals began popping up. Some of you are in this section. Some of your copies began to pop up. And astonishingly, some of the papyrus copies began to pop up as well. And so then the exercise began to say, how well do they reflect what the original text shared? But let me share with you how some of these began to pop up. Some of these are just fascinating stories. I'll read just two or three of them. Uh, The most fascinating one took place, I think, on the monastery on the top of Mount Sinai in this monastery uh, of St. Catherine's. Yes, Mount Sinai, the same mountain where we claim Moses got the Ten Commandments. Up there, there is this monastery that is built. One day, a great archaeologist by the name of Count Tischendorf went to pay a visit to this monastery. He was a German count who was from Russia. Think Indiana Jones type of person, right? He just into artifacts and exploring things. It was kind of one of his hobby. Well, in 1844, this Count Tischendorf decided to go to this monastery and find some artifacts for archaeological hobby that he had, never suspecting that the most valuable thing he would ever find there was right underneath his nose. 
He's out kind of digging around, exploring this area, this region for a while. And he comes back in because it's been a cold afternoon. And now it's evening time. And he comes to put his feet up by the fire. And he notices a, a monk that is stoking the fire. And he kind of looks at the monk and sees that he's putting these rectangular pieces of something from a basket into the fire to stoke the flames. And he says, hey, hey hold on. Um, uh, why are you using those? He said, well, these burn really, really well. And so he kind of looks a little further into this. And he says, uh, can I kind of see what, what you're burning? And so the man, the monk hands him this, this, this kind of this parchment and on it, his, his heart begins to race because there's Greek words that are written on this parchment. And he soon realizes that these are ancient Greek copies of the New Testament more than any museum had ever had or heard of at that time. So he says, you know, can I have that basket of kindling that you have there? Kind of just as a souvenir of sorts that I can take it home with me. And he takes it home and he discovers, and it becomes a famous discovery, that these are the most rare New Testament manuscripts ever discovered. It turns out that the early Christians had sent up these manuscripts from Jerusalem to the monastery when the Romans had invaded the city that they were in, and they had gone up to save there. Either those people who sent them up forgot about them, or they were probably killed or displaced and could never go back and get the, the manuscripts again, and so people didn't really put it together that they were up there. Well, this count wants to go back and get some more. So he goes back to the monastery, asks for some more. The monks are kind of on to him now, says, no, we don't think so. And he begins to leave kind of discouraged. They had taken the rest of the manuscripts and hidden them up in uh, the attic behind uh, with key locked door. And as he's leaving, the count is leaving the grounds. A custodian comes up to him and says, hey, come here, which is what all custodians do, right? Hey, come here. And so he says, he says, come on, I can get you up there. And so he's got this key and he takes him up there, unlocks it and gives him the rest of these, of these materials. And again, it's the earliest known copy of the New Testament dating from about 200 years or so after the New Testament book was written. These are some ancient unseals that resemble line for line, the Greek that was in the Middle Age minuscule, so going from this translation to this translation. In other words, the translations had hardly ever changed going from years and years and years to another set of copies. They went back and they traced it and said, wow, these match almost perfectly, except for maybe just some transcribes or you know some lettering that was maybe off just a little bit or a misspelled word here or there. Meanwhile, 400 years before that, back in 1475, at the Vatican, someone is cataloging the Vatican Library for the very first time, and they discover an ancient manuscript known as the Codex Vaticanix, which is the oldest complete New Testament that's ever found, dating all the way back to 325 A.D., Now, the Vatican hears about this. They say, hey, great, a copy of the Greek New Testament. They take it. They say, thank you very much. They put it under lock and key because they don't know if they can read that, if it ends up being the scriptures that they have today. And so the Catholic Church there just kind of says, we don't want to really get into that right now. Let's just leave it there. It's locked up all the way to the 1800s when some scholars put some pressure on the church and said, hey, come on, let's take a look at this, see what it's like. And when they did, they found, again, almost exactly word for word, the same as the best minuscules, that so many of these now have been found. There's over 266 of these unseals that have now been found. They all agree to a startling degree 
that the biblical text that we have now in the 21st century is true and reliable all the way back to that translation of Scripture. Now, here's one more story, and this is incredible. Some of the earliest papyrus skulls, and that was the area in the section over here that stood up, some of those began to be discovered as well. Stunning finds, archaeologists found a mummy dating back to the late 150 A.D., and, and um, other opinions on it were as it could even be earlier than that. It could be 117 A.D., all the way even up to 98 A.D. The archaeologists have uncovered a mummy in Egypt, and its head was wrapped in a parchment that was from chapter 18 of the book of John. Now, this get, get the setting of all this. This could be as old as 98 A.D., Many people believe that John wrote his gospel and then the book of Revelation around 85 AD or 90 AD, somewhere in there. We're only talking a decade later that we now have something from the book of John, John chapter 18. And again, as you go back and experts have looked over this parchment, John chapter 18, they have seen that the same John 18 that was from here, one step we believe away from the originals, is just like we have way over here in our scriptures. True to God's form, it reads, and it's been kept for us as God's word says. What does that mean? It means God's word is trustworthy. It means, as you go all the way back there, we don't just have copies of copies of copies of copies, but we have the closest, we believe, the original of what God said, which is very, very, very authentic, which if there's any indiscrepancies, you'll see that listed in your scriptures. There are a few, but again, none of those, none of those have ever affected the doctrine or beliefs that we have in scripture. That's the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament. What about looking at the Old Testament. Well, some of you will recognize the story when I tell this, but the Old Testament temple scrolls were ancient official copies that were copied by the Masorites um, that then lent to our Bibles as they were printed in the 1400s or 1456. Let me show the story of the most popular one of how we can see that those are very true. One day in March of 1947, a shepherd boy by the name of Muhammad Abdid was looking for a lost goat in a region that was just about uh, one mile west of the Dead Sea. And so there are caves in this region much like this, and he went out looking for his goat. One of his goats had wandered away, so he's going around, and he notices a cave. In that cave, he takes a rock, and he takes a rock, and he throws it in the cave, hoping to hear the bleeding of his goat that he would pull him out, or thinking at the least that it would just hit another rock or it would hit some, some uh, ground, but it didn't. It cracked, and he heard that there must be some pottery in there. So he goes back, and he gets this kind of this torch with a flame on it, walks into the caves, and looks around, and sees a number of pots that are in there. Inside these pots are leather scrolls. So he takes them to some friends. He says, hey, what do we do with these things? Someone says, well, you know what? I know a shoemaker, and the shoemaker, you know, could use some of this leather, so let's take it over to him, a man by the name of Kando. Let's take it to him, and maybe he can use them. Well, Kando sees these, and he's wise to this. He says, you know what? These are probably worth something. And so he lets the word out, and he knows a Syrian monk who has connections to New Jersey here in the United States. Whoever thought that we'd be talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls connecting to the Super Bowl today in New Jersey, right? There it is. 
But there's connections there. They bring these scrolls to the United States. They try and put them in the Wall Street Journal ad saying, hey, we got some scrolls for sale. Someone shows up, says, whoa, do you realize what you have here? They are then shipped back to the Rockefeller Museum in Israel and kind of kept under lock and key until the Six-Day War, which I believe was in 1967. And when that happened, some people came in there, overtook the Rockefeller Museum, took out these copies and found, wow, look at what we have here, realizing that one was missing. Well, that word gets around, and someone who remembered that Kando was the source of getting those copies out went over to Kando and said, hey, Kando, where's the other copy? He kind of denies it at first, but then they say, no, come on, you have to have it around here. He goes into his house. He looks under a tile. He pulls the tile out, and he pulls out one last scroll. And it is the one of the oldest copies of the Temple Scrolls that dates back 2,000 to 24 years ago. And these Dead Sea Scrolls were copies of the Temple Scrolls. In other words, this was the first person who got the whisper in the telephone game, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those have been very popular. Many people have heard about those, see those. But the question now comes, what was in them? What was printed? What was written up? And with what is written up, does it match what we have in our scriptures? And beyond a shadow of a doubt, in fact, let me just read in this manuscript dating back to Christ, before Christ. Remember, this is the Old Testament. This is years before Christ. They were word for word identical with our standard Hebrew text based on the Masoretic text. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls as a whole are similar to the Masoretic text in at least 95% of the cases, and the other 5% mostly consisting of variations of spelling. Now, I know we're getting a little academic here, but I just want to put it into this kind of this terminology because many of you deal with people who are like that. Many of you might even deal with people who say, well, you know what, there's lots of ancient scriptures. How true are those? The Bible holds up and beyond all the other ancient scriptures. In fact, if you would go and look at uh, Homer or Aristotle or Plato or the Iliad or read some of those things, those things predate even some parts of scripture. Those cannot be proven even as much as our Bible now can be proven by some of these findings that they've had over time to prove that we have got its original content here. In fact, I'll just share some of these facts. The Bible has better manuscript evidence than any other book in ancient history. In fact, only about one one-thousandth of the text is even, in tech, is even in doubt. And where it is in doubt, it never, ever has affected the doctoral teachings that is there. In the remaining interval between the date of writing and the earliest manuscripts... They're so small as to be negligible. And most people would say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have these kind of written-up copies that are so true to what the original text were. Now, again, we're kind of academic on this. I wanted to fill your mind with that just to show you. We don't have to stand in front of people and say, well, I just, you know what, it's God's Bible, it's God's Word, and that's why I believe it. You can give them a reason for the hope that you have. I'll tell you something else. Let me shift over into kind of the external evidence. In Scripture, there's much talk about kings. 
There's a lot to talk about history. There's talks about cities. There's talk about wars. There are thoughts on the ocean and stars and the universe. We can now look at some of those things that are talked about in Scripture, and we can say, okay, has there been proof for those things that we have discovered? And the answer to that is yes. Over all these hundreds of years, we can now go back and look and say, that has been proven that that civilization is and has been exist- has been in existence. In fact, let me use science to do this first of all. As I talk about science, so please hear me on this. God's word was never written in a scientific age. It wasn't written to prove God. It starts with God. In the beginning was the Word, it says in John. But in the beginning, in Genesis, talks about God just being there. God was already there. So the Bible never sets out to say, let me give a proof for who God is and how he got here and if he's true. It doesn't do that. But today, we can use science to look at other parts of Scripture and say, wow, if that measures up, that only confirms over and over again how trustworthy and true Scripture is. The purpose of the Bible is a message of reconciliation for mankind, not a proof text. But we can use some of it to say, is God's Word true? And where I've written this up is on the back side where it says science and the Bible. And we're not going to have time to go over all this. Let me just point out a few things. You know, it used to be that scientists thought there was about a thousand stars in the sky. That's all they thought it was. And so can you imagine, you know, being back in that age and they're saying, well, there's only a thousand stars. That's all there ever is. You know what the Bible has to say about that? The Bible says the stars can't be counted, similar to the sands on the seashore out of Jeremiah. Now scientists today, because of better telescopes and study and research, they can see that there are at least a hundred million billion stars. That's what the Bible was saying way back when, right? You go a little further, you say, you know, it used to be that they used to think the world and the earth was flat, right? The Bible gives reference to the earth being a sphere, as it says out of Isaiah 40, verse 22. So again, the Bible kind of way ahead of our scientific minds, but now today we obviously know that the earth is a sphere. Uh, even, again, I'm just skipping over this part, you can read that on your own, proof that there has been a universal flood across the world. We know that to be true. The story of what? The story of of Noah. Absolutely. Genesis chapter 6 and uh, 7 and 8. We see Noah. True. And the further we get along in time, the further we get in discoveries from science, I think more and more it's going to just be proven, proven true over and over and over again. Let me give you one other field that can prove that, though. Archaeology. Archaeology has done nothing to disprove Scripture. In fact, it only has proven Scripture over and over again. We've discussed about the two findings, the Sinai discovery of the Bible and the Vatican discovery of the Bible. We've discussed about the papyrus and such. But did you know that Egyptian hieroglyphs now, they've seen that it reverts back to the stories that the Bible shares? You know, there's a Hittite civilization that was talked about in Scripture, and in the 1960s, there's been discoveries of this Hittite civilization that have actually been true. And so, again, it's not that it never was true. It's just that archaeology is now coming along and proving it, proving that the things in the Bible are very true. We can know their truthfulness. We can know their reliability throughout Scripture. And we can know that it proves it to be 100% accurate. In fact, let me give you a quote here by a famed Israeli archaeologist, Nelson Gluick, who is not a Christian. So he does. he's not trying to give a worldview slant to say, I'm going to prove that the Bible is true. But here's what he says. 
He says, it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Nothing has. It has only gone to proving Scripture and what is in here. And forgive me for just a second for bagging on another religion, but let me just put this out there because many of you know the truth about this religion, the Mormon faith. I challenge you for anybody who's Mormon or a friend of yours to have them go back in history, to have them go back in archaeology and find any, any proof of their text that can be found from that. It's just not there. Their history is not there. It can't be proven. They can't be, it has not been seen. You might say, well, it just hasn't been done yet. Well, it has been with the Christian faith and the Judaish, uh, Jewish faith, but it can't be within a Mormon faith. And my tendency says that. It's because it's Satan made up that religion, a serpent or a lizard or a snake visiting Joseph Smith, and that's a subject for a whole nother talk that we might have. But I just put that out there, that it doesn't prove other religions, but Scripture is being revealed by science and archaeology to be true over and over and over again. I'll give you one other thing. This is interesting. This isn't really a proof. It's just kind of a little, huh, never thought about that before. But, Matt, go ahead and throw that map up there for just a second. Have you ever thought why God revealed himself to this area right here. I mean, Israel, and for those of you who are looking over on this map, right here. Israel is right here. I'm going to get you all covered, right? Israel is only 40 miles wide. It's only 120 miles long. Why did God reveal himself right there? Well, you look at it and you say, it's the only place that connects three continents. It's a place of major, major trading that would go on, and it allowed the gospel message to go out from that whole region right there. Uh, We could look at prophecies. We could see that there are over 260 prophecies that have already been fulfilled, but I know our heads are kind of swelling with this, so let me bring this to the now what, or more appropriately, the so what. Why do we care about this? Why Why does this really need to be talked about? Why do we need to know that the Bible is so true and authoritative? And why are you spending so much time on this? Here's why. There needs to be some sort of foundation from which our faith is based upon. If there's not then you can just believe one thing and someone else can believe another thing and I can interpret this to be meaning this and I can say, well, no, it's over here and God told me this. That's what happened with the Mormon faith. Or God told me this or God told me this. We need to go back to our text. We need to go back to our scriptures and be able to say, this is the litmus test. This is true. And as much as we have talked here today, this is true to how God has originally given this to us. Because if Satan or our culture can discredit this word, then everything else begins to fall apart. That's why it's so true. That's why you have to know and hold this in such high, high esteem. Because if you kind of lower it down to say, well, you know what, I'm not sure it's true. Well, there could be some misrepresentation. Then we begin to put it really low, low. We begin to walk on it. We begin to say, no, I know more about this than the Bible does. No, we don't. We have to recognize this as the infallible word of God, accurate and true as we hold it in our hands. And it is powerful at changing lives. That's really where this goes. That that is not something to run from. That's something to run to because this word is so alive and so active and so real in our lives if we open ourselves up to it. 
fact, I was sharing some of these thoughts with some people a number of years ago within our college and our crosswalk ministry, and uh, someone wrote me a note. They said, you know what, Pastor Brad, today I took a Bible for the very first time. In fact, he said, I've always been afraid of it. I've always run from it. I've been coming to church, but I never wanted to have it in my hands. And he said, wow, even to now have it in my hands just meant something so much more true, even more than up on the screen, but to have it in my hands was so much. He said, thank you for putting this out and making this real. Thank you for the challenge before us. And I look at that and I say, because he talked about he wanted to begin to read it every day and wanted to see it as God's word. Think how powerful it becomes when it comes from here into here, but not only here, but now it comes out here from our hearts. That's where really we need to get it. I've taken some time to show how we can rely upon this to be so true. Now we have to just take that and say, okay, that needs to get in here. It needs to get in here and be true. Let me read another uh, testimony of someone who now coming to a place of saying, I know God's word is true. He said, Dear Pastor Brad, I want to thank you for keeping God's word real and relevant. The Bible has really helped me to understand the standards that God has called us to live by as believers. Looking back on my life, I didn't always live according to God's word. I used to behave in ways that were truly ungodly, and I know that God was not pleased with my lifestyle. I struggled with anger. I struggled with forgiveness in ways that were damaging to my family, to my friends, and complete strangers. The only way I had learned to interact with others in my worldly ways were following the, if, I, if you hurt me, I will hurt you type of mentality. I live by only the strong survive mentality. Now I know better because the Bible tells me to do to others as I would have done to myself. And that helps me to value others more than myself. Thank God that due to his love and mercy, I have continued to experience healing in my heart and my mind. I now have a much better relationship with other people. Keep preaching the Bible unashamedly because we all need the Bible so that our worldview is based on God's words, not my words, not our culture's words, but God's words. I mean, do you ever wonder why people try to discredit this? They try to discredit this because they ultimately they don't want to follow it. If I can discredit Scripture and say that it really doesn't hold a high priority in my life, then I can basically do what I want to do. I I know that. That's hard. It's hard to say, okay, this is over the top of me and I need to follow this. In fact, I love what Mark Twain said about that. Mark Twain said, It is not the parts of the Bible I do not understand that bother me the most. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me the most. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us that our words can hurt. It teaches us that our thoughts need to be in tune with the Lord. It teaches us we need to love when we live our lives. But here's the the great thing about this, is that the very helper, the very counselor that wrote these words is also available to you to live out these words. God just doesn't put this upon us and make it burdensome to us and say, okay, now go live it. But the very person, the very, the very being that, that was infused these words and the Holy Spirit speaking through the personalities that wrote this, that same Holy Spirit is available to us today to live that out. And so for us to know that this is true and to know that God also gives us a helper and a counselor 
is even greater thought because that counselor lives inside of us. In fact, would you read this verse with me? This is from Psalm 119, verse 11. Let's just read this together. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's why we need God's word in our hearts. That's why I hope you know that this is so true and so profound. In fact, let me end with one last thought. One of the most world-renowned theologians was by the, uh, a man by the name of Karl Barth. And he was asked one day, what is the most profound thing about the Bible? Here's what he said. He said, that Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the Bible tells me so. Enough said. Amen. Amen.